Hi, I'm your host, Dave Kemp, and this is Future Ear Radio. Each episode, we're breaking down one new thing, one cool new finding that's happening in the world of hearables, the world of voice technology. How are these worlds starting to intersect? How are these worlds starting to collide? What cool things are going to come from this intersection of technology? Without further ado, let's get on with the show. All right, so we are joined here today by Bradley Metrock. Bradley, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Dave, hey, thank you for having me. And uh, we're here live in person in St. Louis. It's an honor. Um, so my name is Bradley Metrock. I'm CEO of a company called Project Voice. Um, we do a number of things that put us sort of in the center of somewhere toward the center of the conversation on voice technology and conversational AI. Um, There's three parts to our business. The first one is what we call the Project Voice Advisory Group, which works with uh, mid-sized to large companies, often Fortune 1000 companies that um, are looking to integrate voice and AI, conversational AI in some way into their business, whether it's operational, whether it's marketing, whatever. The second is what we call Project Voice Catalyst, which is a consulting arm for companies born native to voice and AI um, that need more customers, that need more partners of some sort that are looking to raise VC money or investor money. We help them do all that and accelerate their business. And then the third part is what we call the Project Voice Media Group, which encompasses everything we do from a content standpoint, Voice First FM and all the podcasts, This Week in Voice VIP, our newsletter, the Project Voice series of uh, events, um, which are a series of virtual and now coming back, you know, uh, some will be physical once again later this year. So um, between all of that, um, we keep our eye on the space pretty close. Yeah, that's awesome. I, uh, I'm so glad that you were able to join me today. I know this is part of your tour and that's what I ultimately wanted to talk about was, you know, really kind of like hear from you about this, uh, this magical mystery tour that you've been on hitting. I think you've now hit 25 cities. I think St. Louis is your 25th. Um, so, you know, I've known you for a while. I think that we first met when we were at the, the, when it was the Alexa conference, but back in the Chattanooga Public Library. Um, And, you know, I think that we've both just kind of played witness to this space really maturing and evolving in a lot of ways. And then bam, we get hit with the pandemic. And I think this is just going to be a really interesting conversation to hear from you, you know, kind of like what What's going on in in all these different groups that you're meeting with across the country um, and, you know, kind of at the tail end of what I think to be the tail end of the pandemic and um, how are people thinking about the way that this is all changing, like what's going to be the role that voice plays, you know, coming out of the pandemic. Um, I, I just think that we're at a really interesting point where I think everybody's been very introspective this past year um, re, re-examining, you know, what, what, what makes sense for our business, what makes sense for the types of things that we want to build, you know, using voice technology. And so, uh, I have, you know, the, the list of cities pulled up here. Um, you know, so you started in January, January 11th, it looks like, um, you started out in California. So you hit San Jose, 
San Francisco, LA, and then you went down to Phoenix. So that was leg one. So why don't we just start there? Tell me about the very beginning of this and even maybe even before, what was the genesis of why you decided, all right, I'm hitting the road at a time when a lot of people were thinking like, I'm doing the exact opposite. I'm going to continue to stay indoors and, you know, just bunker down. Yeah. Um, Well, the tour was originally supposed to start in November in Florida and um, combination of things that didn't feel right at the time. Um, You had a lot of people who were beginning to um, really shelter in place for the purpose of salvaging the Christmas season and the holiday season. And, um, you know, my wife really didn't want me to go then. And so I delayed it. And I applaud Sarence. Sarence has been the, the presenting sponsor of the whole tour. Uh, they've been fantastic to deal with. I, I celebrate them every chance I get because, first of all, it's bold um, to come join me on this thing, uh, which they did. And uh, they've been super flexible and uh, just a joy to work with. So, yeah, so the tour um, didn't start in November and it did start in January and it started with California. And I liken that to um, starting a course with the final exam because going out to um, San Jose, San Francisco and Los Angeles, um, you know, you had, I mean, the, the fever pitch of all this stuff out there was, was high. And, um, you know, what I got out there and discovered was that, um, you know, there's some places that are really, um, super duper serious about COVID to the point at which it's been transformative to the culture. And I include in those places, Seattle, for sure, and Boston. Uh, those are sort of t- two top of my list. But California was a little bit different. It's been a little overblown. You had a lot of non-compliance with mask wearing, almost as much as I saw in like Nashville or, or even parts of Alabama or, or even Florida, which is, Florida is the worst. Um, <laughs> and we'll get to that. But, um, uh, you know, a real mixed bag stuff in California, which I really wasn't expecting based on the media coverage. Uh, went out there, I had uh, two of the largest meetups we've had the whole time in San Jose. I think we had 11 people and in San Francisco, I think we had 12. And um, so it was uh, it was a lot of fun and a great way to kick the whole thing off. Yeah, I think uh, you kind of went right into the belly of the beast. Um, and it's interesting though. So uh in California, you start this tour beginning of January. Tell me about, you know, San Francisco, LA, um, and uh, what was the other one? Um, Los Angeles. Um, who did you meet with? Who did you, you know, what were, what were some of the stories from that? So the, so the format of the whole thing has been, there's one core meetup in each city that's listed on Eventbrite. But the reality is, I've been meeting privately with people who didn't want to meet with a group and I've been very accommodating to that. Um, So, you know, in both San Jose and San Francisco, there was two large meetups that both took place in parks out there. And, um, you know, uh, 
had three or four people from Allen.ai come out from the one in San Francisco, had almost had a bunch of people from Zamo come out to one of them. Uh, Caitlin Gutekunst came out uh, to one of them. Um, you know, Eric Eglin of Microsoft, you know, um, I'm not really big on naming naming names. <laughs> um, yeah, I you, you know, I can name some names, but um, uh, because I feel like um, that's not why I did it. You know, I, I, I don't care if I'm meeting with somebody who, and I met with plenty of people who have um, the desire to get into voice and AI somehow, but they aren't right now. Um, and so I love meeting with those people just as much as I love meeting with the CEO of Serence who came out to the first meeting that we had as well. So um, uh, it's, it's been good and it's been in furtherance of my overall objective, which is uh, expand the community. Um, you know, this community is going through a, what I would call growing pains right now, where, you know, a lot of the things that we do are the same 50 to 100 people talking to the other same, uh, the same other 50 to 100 people about the same three things. And getting out um, at a time when people were uh, buckling down, um, it just as a course of you know selection bias brought out um, free thinkers, and it brought out um, hungry people, and that's who I wanted to be meeting with, and it's just been fantastic. So. You know, you're, you're focusing on the first leg of the tour. I will give you one story from the first leg of the tour. Okay. Um, so when I was in Phoenix, I was flying out and I'm sitting there in the airport. It was in January, obviously. And, um, and I'm sitting there, I think it's on a Thursday, whenever it is uh, weekday. And um, I had the thought, wow, this is a lot of people in the airport. You know, I'm looking around and, I don't know how many people are in the Phoenix airport on a normal basis, but it can't be this many. This is a lot of people. And um, that was really my first awakening to the fact that personal travel really hasn't decreased. Um, it's, it's increased back to COVID, free COVID levels and even above that very rapidly. And um as I've gone, you know, since then to all of these different other airports, I've just noticed the numbers rising and rising and rising. So Phoenix, Phoenix was my was was a wake up call for me that, you know, you read this stuff about people not traveling and it's just fundamentally false. And so you look around and you see who is who are all these people, and it's not business travelers for the most part. It's personal and. So that I, that was that was something I'll remember from that leg is that experience. Yeah, I mean, I think like this whole idea that you're traveling in this time um, is, I think, just really interesting because it will be one of those things that you'll look back on as um, just such a unique period of time and such a unique experience. Um, because I, I, you know, I think that you're kind of privy to something that very few of us are outside of the folks that have done the personal travel. And I think you're right. I think that 
a lot of the travel that's occurred, um, you know, throughout the pandemic is is very much on the personal side. I think business travel is the one that's really been hit hard. And I don't know if that's going to come back. I mean, I think that it will to a degree. And maybe this is a good time to talk a little bit about, you know, your your viewpoint on in-person events. Like that's clearly uh, your, you know, that's your business. Um, I know that as you described at the beginning, you have these uh, sort of peripheral businesses as well. And it sounds like, you know, uh, the, the consulting business is really picking up steam. But I'm curious, like, do you think that conferences, for example, um, do they come back the same? If not, how are they going to be transformed in your eyes? Because personally, I'm of the mind that they will come back. I'm not sure how they'll look when they come back. You know, I think that we're seeing parts of the traditional conference be unbundled in a way. Um, you know, you see the rise of all these online things, whether it be the rise of Zoom, and then now you have all the social audio stuff with things like Clubhouse and stuff like that. So I, you know, I don't know if that, you know, the conference of tomorrow will look like what they looked like before. I do think that they will exist, but I'm curious, what do you think are the, the parts of a traditional conference that are most susceptible to change um, and maybe becoming a little bit more digitally native? And then what, what aspects of the conference do you think have the opportunity to maybe become even more of a focus than prior to the pandemic? Now that again, we can kind of re-examine what makes sense here rather than just the constant state of, well, we did, we do it this way because we've always done it this way. I mean, if there's a silver lining of the pandemic, I think it is that, that we've been able to really look at things in a way where we say, does this make any sense? You know, and so what's your thoughts on events in general coming out of this? Um, I think there's a short-term answer to that and then a long-term answer to that. The long-term answer to that, I've never been more certain. Events are going to come back exactly the way they were. Okay. I think that, um, but the question is how long? And I think I think you're looking at I think you're looking at at least three years, so um, it's not going to be anytime soon. And um, you know, the more that people say this stuff that you hear about, um, you know, there's sort of a prevailing thought right now that events have been permanently changed to become hybrid. And by hybrid, you mean that there's a physical component, but there's also a virtual component component primarily for the purpose of making the event accessible to everybody. I reject that. I don't think that that's going to be something that we see um, all the time. And in fact, I think that there will be backlash to that for reasons that for this conversation don't really matter. You know, I, um, I'm really focused on what's going on in the short term. And um, what's going on in the short term is, let me describe business travel to you, okay? There's two types of business travel right now. First of all, it's CEOs. So just because somebody's traveling for business does not mean that they are a CEO. But if someone's traveling for business, it means they are likely a CEO. And um, that makes sense because the world doesn't stop for CEOs like it does for other folks. Uh, the pressures on them are greater um, and uh, they're not sensitive to, to time. 
And, um, and so CEOs are not traveling willy nilly. They've cut a lot of travel out, but when it's super important and strategic, they're on a plane. I've seen them. And, um, and so that's part of it. The other part of it is when, when somebody can get in a car and drive a certain amount of time, have a limited engagement with somebody, maybe a customer, maybe a group of customers or whatever, like a sales call or, or going to a brief meetup or something, and then get in the car and come back, <laughs> you know, without that much time, that's happening too. So that's the sum total of the universe of business travel, which I've seen, you know, and, um, and so that has informed how we've been looking to bring events back. Um, we're not going to sit around and, you know, have middle management tell us over and over and over again that they can't travel because either they don't want to travel or, you know, for some policy reason with their company, they can't travel. Um, middle management has gotten quite comfortable with new habits and new muscle memory formed during the pandemic. Um, saying I'm, I'm, I was already, I was already traveling too much. See middle management had to travel a ton pre COVID. So middle management is per perfectly fine embracing this new lifestyle where they are able to use COVID as an excuse to not travel. Junior staff, nobody cares what they think anyway, there's no budget. So junior staff might, staff might want to travel, but there's no budget, it doesn't matter. So the CEOs are where the action is at for conferences to return. And it also makes sense for a philosophical reason. CEOs can't ask middle management to travel because without them traveling, lest they be accused of um, my life must not be that important or uh, my life is less important than, than the CEOs because here I am being asked to travel while the CEO's not. And all that resentment um, can't happen. So the CEOs have to lead the way with business travel. And, um, and we're, I'm seeing it already. I'm sure I'm gonna be seeing more of it. So what we've decided to do with Project Voice is convene um, what we originally called the Council of 100. Now we're just calling it Project Voice 100. It's gonna be 100 top CEOs in the voice and AI space coming together. And, um, you know, we've asked a lot of people about this. We're figuring out who's going to be there and who's not. And basically 80%, um, probably more than 80%, but we'll call it 80% of the people we've talked to about this have said, hell yes. I, I, you know, you don't have to ask me twice. And then 20% are like, hell no. And don't ever ask me again. <laughs> and then of course there's nobody in the middle. So everyone, you know, people are on one side or the other. And, um, but uh, people are going to be shocked. Um, you know, I, I haven't talked that much about it. We put out an email about it. I, you know, I haven't pre-COVID the way I might have marketed this. Um, you know, we had emails that we would do where we would just list the names of all the companies coming. I'm not doing that anymore. Um, you know, these CEOs, they're coming. I'm not going to violate their trust. If you're there, you'll see who's there. And I'm sure there'll be a picture of it. But um, now we're touching on something else, which is that with events, 
the concept of event marketing is temporarily non-existent. If, if we were to market, um, who are you, first of all, who are you marketing to? Like ma mainstream marketing channels for events are not gonna hit your CEOs. They're instead gonna hit middle management, which is just going to be angry <laughs> that you're daring to do something. And so you're gonna catch all the wrong people. Um, so the concept of event marketing is gone. Um, and, and it's just, if you wanna do something in person, that capability exists to thread the needle, but, but those, are in, those are private conversations you're having. Um, and then the final point I wanna make on this is that, um, you know, these are just observations. Um, I didn't create this scenario. Um, the unfortunate truth about this is that one thing that we always like to do, we had, we had a lot of volunteers that we would let to come to events for free. Uh, and those people have come have, in many situations have grown to be great friends um, and people that we have, have partnered with on things down the road. And um, you can't do that anymore, right? At least right now, um, you know, you you would give free passes to this group and that group, and and support them in different ways. And you can't do that either. And why why can you not do that? The reason you can't do that is because I've already established that it's the CEOs traveling. And um, first of all, you know, CEOs want to deal with people at that same elite level. But also any additional person that you bring in the door right now is a health risk to everybody else. So the, the economics and the dynamics of in-person events are gonna be really out of whack while over this next two to three year period. And there's nothing that can be done about it. Um, and um, it just, what it really means is that when you see people who are in need you need to help them where you can because they're not going to have access to some of the things they might have had access to before. But it also means when you can do something hybrid, go ahead and do it, and which is what we're doing with Project Voice, with Project Voice Worldwide, and some other things that we're doing. Um, I hate virtual events now. I can't stand them. I don't want to do them anymore. But we're going to do it. We're going to suck it up and do it anyway because um, you know that's that's the only exposure some people will have to the community um, over the next probably 24 to 36 months. That's interesting. I mean, obviously you would know better than anyone based on a lot of the conversations that you're having with, like you said, these CEOs. And um, I think you, you make a valid point about, you know, kind of the, the justification as to why, you know, whether it be from a public health standpoint or if it's, you know, just the internal operations of in the workings of these companies, I do think that there's going to be a period here that will be this weird limbo, you know, how do you, how do you bring people together in a way? And uh, I think, I think you're right. I think it's probably going to be something where it will be in flux and then, you know, hopefully we'll have a return to normalcy, you know, as relates, as it pertains to relates, uh, as it pertains to events uh, at a certain point. So I guess it's a, it's a waiting game until then, but I do think that this is, um, it's cool what you're doing now though, with this tour, because I think it still gives people an opportunity to get together. And, and part of the way I'm thinking about this is like, you know, um, is, is this going to be something where it's a return to that, 
really um, sort of micro level community, you know, and looking at who are the people in my area that are uh, like-minded and, and that I can, you know, work together with and, and, and collaborate with and having, um, you know, that sense of hyper-localness, like as Brian would say, you know, yeah. and uh, so that's interesting to think about. So going back to your tour here, you went, you went Cali and Arizona, and then you bounced down to Florida the next week. Um, I think this is so funny how you, cause the week after that, then you went up to the Pacific Northwest. So Florida, um, you go California to Florida, that had to have been as stark of a difference. Um, so curious stories from that. Um, what was that period like? And also, if you want to just kind of weave in, like, I know that you had mentioned your consultancy business was, uh, has really started to generate some momentum, you know, throughout this. So, I, you know, I, I'm really curious to hear about, you know, without naming names or anything like that, what have been some of these um, aha moments for the the people's uh, the, in the groups that you're working with um, that maybe the pandemic has triggered a different way of thinking, different opportunity sets? You know, are you are you seeing that at at scale right now? Of you know whether it be like contactlessness and you know okay we're going to refocus our efforts here. Just curious to hear about the mind set shift that you've maybe encountered as it relates to how the various companies, developers, individuals that are operating in this space are sort of now thinking about things during the pandemic. And then as we exit the pandemic. Yeah. So um, so I'll sort of go through that in order. So Florida, I love the state of Florida. Great place. Um, you've got a real mix of mindsets. Uh, you, you got you got your free thinkers. You got your party line towers, and these people are all together. And it's a combustible mix sometimes, and but you get to see a different dynamic and. Um, yeah, Florida, um, different parts of Florida were more compliant with masks and thing, distancing and things, but Miami didn't care, couldn't care less. Miami was not, not feeling it. And, um, you know, there's been a lot made about, you know, a lot of banging the gong about Miami being a tech hub now. Um, and you got the mayor down there doing a bunch of stuff and that ecosystem's growing. And you can tell just by being in it um but uh but yeah it's um that was that was a different that was a different sort of animal and um gorgeous weather you know the whole time as opposed to when i went to seattle you know portland seattle you know the pacific northwest weather was terrible <laughs> um you know and uh but yeah, Miami, people ask what, what place was the least concerned about COVID during the tour, and the answer is easily Miami. Um, and it was in, in, stark contrast, in stark contrast to Seattle because Seattle has been easily the most militant uh, COVID place. Um, and, uh, you know, one thing I will touch on is that um, 
just like the pandemic has been a um, transform function, you know, mathematical in nature almost, um, input your life as it was into pandemic function f of x outcomes, whatever it is now. And for some people, uh, I would argue that most people are better off. Maybe they don't know it. Um, you know, if you had a relationship that was on the rocks beforehand, that thing didn't last. And you might be sad about that, but you're probably better off. Um, if you had something, you know, if you um, had stability before COVID, um, then that served you well and you, and you also came out at a better place. Um, companies, same thing. Companies enter the pandemic and out comes something else. Um, but it's important to note that locations are the same way. So all of these cities are places that I had been to before COVID. And so I'm in, in some, it had been a while, uh, others it hadn't been that long. And every city and geography is going through this change function as well. Miami is totally different, totally different group of people, still the same sort of ethos because it sort of attracted the same type of folks. But um, a place like Seattle is fundamentally changed um, and very different. Portland, very different um, and both demonstrably less safe. Um, and that's not a political statement. That's just an absolute fact. You don't believe me, go there. Um, New York, same thing. Newark is the easily the most unsafe place I've ever been in my whole life. And um, I, you know, I've never used drugs my entire life, never used drugs at all. And I've been, I saw more drug use in Newark Penn Station than I have ever seen. Uh, I'm talking about just the whole, the whole complex. And um, one thing about the pandemic is that it has changed the economics of businesses and organizations to where it has put pressure to decrease manpower. Um, there's either been political pressure to decrease manpower because you're jeopardizing, in theory, you know, you're jeopardizing people's health by having them continue to be pre physically present. It's also decreased manpower in that you just, um, you know, your business is different. Either you're coasting, you don't need that many people or you're doing poorly and you can't have that many people regardless, you have less people. When you go to airports, you go to the train station, you go to car rental places, you go to Greyhound stations, all these places I've been, there's one thing in common, less people. And so um, security is a problem. Uh, you know, um, there's opportunities for, for criminals. And I've seen it over and over and over again. Um, as I walked out of the train station into downtown New York City, um, I exited at the Penn Station subway exit, which is right next to Madison Square Garden. I've been there before. It's typically a secure place. And so I get to the top of the escalator and up wa immediately walks this real shady looking uh, dude. And he says, come get in my cab. <laughs> it's exactly what he said. He said, come get in my cab. I'm like, no. And he's like, I'll take you anywhere you want to go. And I said, I got to go down the street. No, thanks. I just walked away from him. 
And, um, you know, in situations like that, I think about my wife. You know, you could never put a woman in those sorts of situations um, unless you just wanted to jeopardize her safety. And, um, and so, so to go back to the tour, um, it's important to note that, you know, places have changed and, um, you gotta, I don't, I don't mean to sound, I mean, I guess I mean to sound alarmist about it. You really have to do your homework because, um, safety is at a premium. And I think there's a parallel for that with events. I think that events, we're going to need to have more security than maybe we have before and we're planning on it. Um, but, um, you know, uh, I think as we shift out of this current chapter, see, people think it's over. They think that um, we've gotten vaccinated and uh, you either trust the science of the vaccines or you buy into it or whatever your opinion on the vaccine is, it really is irrelevant. The caseload is coming down. Um, less people obviously dying, less hospitalizations, you know, all of this great stuff that signals in all likelihood, hopefully, uh, end, of, end of all this. But the problem is, it's not the end of the story. It's just the end of the chapter. And the next chapter may be worse. <laughs> and we're going to be dealing with um, economic repercussions, um, socio-political repercussions. Um, uh, we're going to be reckoning with a lot of things um, in this weird interim period that we're about to be in. And I, I've seen it, and I could never attempt to fully articulate it. It's just, but when you go to all of these places, I, I, I decided to travel from Portland to Seattle by train. Because one thing I wanted to do on this tour is take different modes of transportation. I've done that my whole life. You know, I've flown on a private jet. I've taken mega bus with that whack looking pig on the side of the bus <laughs> for six bucks. Yeah. Okay, I've taken, I've done it all. Um, and um, so I'm not a travel snob. And um, so when I was in Portland, uh, I decided to take the Amtrak to Seattle. So right off the bat, um, I take an Uber from my hotel to the Portland train station. Now, I've traveled on enough trains to know that even pre-COVID, uh, you take a train, you know, if you have two trains going from point A to point B and one train is traveling early in the morning and the other train is traveling in the afternoon, the people that are going to be on those trains are very different and you can just fill in, fill in the rest of it. Um, I get there in the morning and um, to take a train. And I have never seen so many tents in my life around the train station, okay? So, you know, people are just suffering, um, you know, and, and you walk around and people are not asleep. Like, you know, uh, you've got people out walking who are around and this is like 6 a.m. in the morning at sunrise. Um, and uh, no money, uh, desperately need something to eat. And the train station obviously no, is prepared for this because, you know, they're on guard from, from the get-go. And um, I'm talking 
at least 500 tents in the, in the drive up to the train station. So you get in there and it's this constant, the cops are at the gate. They won't, they, they wouldn't let me in until they saw my ticket on my phone. I'm talking to, you don't even walk in the front door and, you know, they're having this constant negotiation with people outside, you know, some of the homeless folks who are right outside the door and, and you just, you know, I talked about Phoenix being a moment of uh, an epiphany almost um, to how many people were traveling. This was an epiphany of everything you've seen in the media about these cities is, it's not just true, it's, it's worse. And, um, you know, I've been a conservative for a long time you know, you're, you're taught, um, I hate to use the word indoctrinated, but that might be a fair word. Like, you know, things like universal basic income and things like that. Um, you know, you're sort of averse to it. You have a visceral response, but it's like, I don't know what you do to take some amount of money from the super duper elite and use it to solve some of these problems because they're not going to solve themselves. They're just going to get worse. It's going to be an uneven road to recovery. And um, that's assume, and we don't even know, I use the word recovery. It's going to be an uneven road to wherever it is that we're going. And uh, you know, that's, if there's a bottom line to the tour in terms of just some of the anecdotes uh, that would be it. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot, lot there that you said that, um, you know, clearly you, you know, there's a big difference between, uh, what you see on TV and, and, you know, what you actually see in person and it's disturbing, you know, to, to say the least. Um, and you have to hope that there is a road here that we're on, that things are going to get better. I hope that, um, you know, what you witnessed was the worst of it. I don't know if I'm right. I, that could just be wishful thinking. Um, but you, you know, there's all kinds of evidence in the data that shows, you know, we hear about the K-shape recovery, right? And uh, the the inequality levels are just becoming more stark. And I think that we're going to be wrestling with a lot of this. I think that, you know, first things first, it's like a fire. You know, the first thing we had to do was put the fire out but then you're left with a lot of the smoldering ash. And um, I think that, that it's, you're right where, you know, it's like the, uh, you know, to say that it's over means, I think what you're implying when you say that is that the pandemic itself is over, but not all of the sort of the byproducts that the, that the pandemic creates and all of the issues that are going to be lingering here. And I think that brings us back to, you know, obviously there are going to be ways in which we as a, as a country um, will have to solve these things. And I often think about like, okay, it's one thing to think about it at scale of how can we do this? Um, and, and, and as you go larger and more macro, you have less and less control. So I always try to just keep it to what are things that I can actually do that are different? And what are the things that this industry and this community of people can do to make meaningful change. Um, I don't think that there's, you know, uh, 
where I'm going with that isn't to say like, how are we going to solve a lot of the homelessness issues from a voice technology standpoint? It's not at all what I mean. What I mean is that, you know, as we move into the future, we're going to have to just constantly be rethinking things. And, and I think that for this particular community, um, I think a lot about, you know, what are ways that we can, we can come up with more of a uh, impactful and more meaningful output, you know, and, and that might just mean that we as a group are cohesive in the inclusiveness and the messaging of, you know, like this is a community for all, right? This is a, that's something that I've always really appreciated about this group is the first time I went to the Alexa conference and, and, and then, you know, with Pete Erickson's group with uh, all the different Modev events, I love the amount of diversity that there is, you know, you get a lot of very eclectic people, you get a lot of very analytical people, you get the mix of engineers and designers. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about this group is that you have this duality of the arts and STEM. And I think that, um, you know, I think, you know, in a weird sort of microcosm way, I think that's representative of maybe where things need to go more broadly is we need to be better about uh, appreciating the different approaches that we all have and, and, and understanding that in the same way that you can look at, you know, one of my, I think one of the coolest things that's happening in the voice space right now is this union between designers and developers. I, I look at them as like, they're kind of polar opposites, but they're also really similar. And, and I think that there's this cool undertone that's brewing where, um, you know, I just had a, uh, a podcast conversation with um, Anna Rosen of VoiceFlow and, you know, a lot of like what V2, the VoiceFlow version two was about was this idea of um, bringing those two together. She used the term a unified language be between the two. And I think that like, <clears throat> I don't normally talk uh, about like more macro level issues on this podcast, but I think that in, in, a, in an effort to relate it back to this conversation and, 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 and in this, uh, this podcast and the stuff that we talk about is I think that what's again, so cool about this group of people is that I think that they're a great representation of what the possibilities can be is this idea of, you know, coming together and, taking extremely different approaches and you can apply that to lots of different things in the, the way that the world works in our bipartisan system, for example, where rather than it be the engineer saying it's going to be this way or the designer saying it's going to be this way, the best outputs are going to be things that are a marriage of the two. It's going to be a blend of the two. And, and so for me, I, I look at a lot of this stuff that's going on in the world today and, and in the country, and I see that the first thing that I think we need to do is there needs to be more of a, a bridge that's made. You know, I'm tired of seeing things that are just burning bridges down and the divisiveness between the two. And, um, you know, I hope that what we're going to see across this decade in the 2020s is that uh, I, I really think that we have so much potential. Um, and I think that a lot of it will come down to can we get on the same page? Yeah, well, and uh, no, I completely agree, and and I think um, one of the things that this group of people 
the voice and AI community will have a chance to impact will be education. So another theme of this tour has been in conversations I wasn't even expecting it to come up in, uh, education has come up during the conversation. And um, we got a real problem with education. And the problem is that people aren't receiving it. Um, you know, the, the uh, these virtual Zoom classes, um, you know, it's been well documented at this point that um, the longer they go, typically beyond one to two months, you start to lose people permanently. They one day they don't, one day they show up for Zoom class, the next day, next day they don't. You never hear from them again. And so, you know, with voice uh, in Minneapolis, I met with um, Delon Crosby um, of Say Kid, who's working on voice and education. And he's created this thing called Toybot. And it's a product, it's, it's still um, early stages for it. <clears throat> but uh, the idea is that, you know, think Teddy Ruxpin, but with some AI. And, uh, and, and Teddy, where Teddy Ruxpin like teaches you a bunch of stuff. And it's from, uh, it's targeted for ages four to nine. You know, I think things like that are gonna be critical. Um, and I, I'm real bullish on the stuff he's doing and he's a talented guy anyway, but uh, just a concept like that because, um, you know, you got two problems. First of all, you got the problem that, um, virtual education as a concept, uh, it doesn't exist. You can, you can argue all you want and I'm sure, you know, it, it just doesn't, it just doesn't exist. And it especially doesn't exist for, you know, younger children. Um, and so we, you know, um, not only are these folks behind, but they also are distant. I just met in Chicago with a very good friend of mine who is a higher up at Deloitte. And, uh, you know, it's been a long time since I've seen him. We went to college together. And he talked about how he has three children. And, uh, you know, they're in Chicago. So Chicago is well-documented. School hasn't been happening, you know, for pub the public schools. And his children have shown um, what I would describe as anxiety toward um, physical interaction with other children because it has been that long since they have, um, you know, it's just, it's just messed them up basically. And, um, <clears throat> and so I see a real role to play. I think one of the big folks is going to be reforming the education system, but that's sort of a broad concept all these people who, ha who ha have immediate needs, they've got to be caught up. They've got to get back on track and um, voice assistants, smart speakers, um, you know, using these new channels to get this educational content out there, you know, increasing the quality of the educational content and the meaningfulness of it and the, you know, continuing to refine that, but then using these delivery systems to get it out to, to people. Um, I think it's, it has to be part of the equation. And so, you know, when I think about this, this community, 
um, that's, uh, that's on my mind, but, um, no, I, and you know, you touched on something else, just the idea of, <clears throat> um, people being willing to work with each other, you know, and, um, and I think that's important too. I, I, uh, I think it's, it's good. You know, we've had a change, um, politically and now I think that, um, you know, it just sort of opens the door for, for people working together. I, you know, for events, I've already made it clear there's not going to be diversity in events for a while. And the reason is because you can barely get anyone to show up for events, period. And I, I name the people that are your, your possibilities, right? Um, you'll take diversity where you can find it, but you're just, it, it, you've just filed under beggars can't be choosers. If you're trying to get in person back on track, there's going to be hard realities to that um, that that you don't do, that that we never dealt with pre-COVID. It was easy for us to have opportunities and to to be to to bring equity to the to the table because the universe was big enough to where we were able to do that. As things come back online. Um, you're not going to see that at all. I think it's just lucky for things to exist. And then once things get back on track, then you can start to extend those invitations and, and you can start to um, rekindle some of this stuff again. Um, I don't know, you know, events trouble me. I, I don't, I don't know. Um, I will talk about our consulting business for a second. You know, we, we really have made a lot of strides with our catalyst program because none of these folks can, could meet. So these companies, these young companies, for the most part, especially ones that had just taken VC money, uh, you just took VC money, um, you know, the VC can say whatever they want, you're on a ticking clock and that money's expected to perform. And it's hard to hire people. It's hard to meet new prospective customers. It's hard to meet new potential partners. And these are areas where we can help because our network is large and, um, and we have an interesting line of sight on all this stuff. And so um, that's what the Catalyst program is. And uh, when I went to Seattle, uh, I met with a CEO up there uh, privately, not as part of the whole, the, the bigger group meeting. And, um, uh, you know, had a great conversation with her. Turns out she's been traveling the whole time, much more so than me, but I, I don't need to uh, disclose all of that, uh, just doing what she needed to do to stay mentally healthy. Um, but um, we did the biggest, one of the biggest business deals I have ever done that didn't involve selling a business over, the, over that dinner. And um, I learned something there too. It was, um, that's where business is gonna take place. Yes, you do the business you have to do over Zoom. And a lot of stuff, you're not gonna travel 2000 miles for a, a single business meeting that is you know, a fraction of 1% of your annual revenue or something like you might've used to do. Um, but when it really matters, when it really, really matters, that stuff is going to be still done in person. And um, we were able to cover so much ground. And um, 
there's no serendipity in a conversation over Zoom. You know, it's like, okay, straight to the point. Oh, okay, bye. And you can't wait to get that camera off fast enough. Um, where it's relaxed in person and you're not talking about, you're not cutting straight to the chase. You're talking about the kids, you're talking about the family, or you're talking about what you think about this thing in the news. Um, and it all lends itself to the ultimate result of a business deal. And, um, and so, uh, you know, we've gone on to do other smaller deals along the way, but a huge deal in Seattle and it made the whole trip worthwhile. I could just stop it now, you know? And, um, uh, and so I'm grateful for that. And, and we've, our position, you know, people, people look at me and I guess they really don't know what to think. I, I don't, I do not like referring to myself as an event organizer and I never have. Um, I, I don't want to be that, you know, I, I, I like events. I, I fully understand the purpose they serve, but what we do is way beyond that. And coming into COVID, it was developing. And so naturally, you know, COVID happens and we end up, you know, uh, being far down the road. And um, we're, we're a dot connector in this space. You know, we're, we're, um, we're somebody, you know, you get on speed dial when you gotta make some shit happen. And that's, that's the role we want to play. And um, we're fortunate that, that people view us that way and have given us a chance to be in that role and that it's flourished because I enjoy it. Um, you know, people are like, well, when are you going to do the next thing? There is no next thing. I, I really like this space. Uh, I'm not going anywhere. And I'm going to rebuild events in whatever way they have to be rebuilt. Um, and in the meantime, we're going to help businesses grow and, um, and, and cause success stories to happen. Well, I think that, um, you know, something that stood out in my mind with what you just said is, uh, this idea of the, the more or less the premium on the in-person visit, right? Um, and I, I tend to agree with you. And I think that I almost wonder, like, I think we overemphasized interpersonal travel. Um, you know, just like you said, like, do you need to travel 2000 miles for something that's not that, uh, that's not that meaningful to the bottom line of the company or something like that. And, and, and really, I think that's the, the argument for why Zoom's a good thing is that it does allow for you to migrate a lot of that stuff that didn't warrant the in-person trip. But I think that you have to be able to balance that with this, you know, in the same line of thought, you need to be able to understand that while an in-person meeting isn't necessary for everything, it's absolutely necessary for some things. And, and I think striking that right balance is going to be key. And again, it goes back to what I was saying before, which is like, one of the benefits, I guess, if you can call it that, of the pandemic is I think it's it's forcing this re-examination of why, why am I traveling 2,000 miles for something that I don't need to do that for? And I think that what that ultimately might lead to is part of the path forward toward in-person meetings, in-person events, is that a, a recalibration of this is actually something that I do need to go and attend uh, rather than traveling. Me personally, 
you know, right before the pandemic, I think it was in 2019, I think I traveled, I went to like 27 different events, like uh, just trade shows in my industry, some of the voice stuff, different conferences that I was speaking at. And a lot of it, a lot of it was redundant. And, and I look at it now and I'm like, wow, I'm really glad that I'm able to kind of re-examine things. But that said, there's like five of those 27 where I'm like, there's absolutely no way that you can replicate that. And the attempts to replicate them online have been horrible. And so I think it it's it plays into this like overarching theme, which is, um, you know, it's like just the, the, the re-examining of everything. And I think that what's, for me, what's kind of cause for optimism is that I think that it's given everybody a chance to reprioritize everything in a way where you do really look at something like this dinner meeting that you had and you recognize what a premium there is on that and how almost impossible it is. And I think that pre-pandemic, we were way too over-indexed on in-person events in a way that it, it sort of, you lost the forest from the trees. You didn't realize that the times in which you should have been meeting with people in person, um, you know, you, you, we almost needed to appreciate the times where it was warranted and the times that it was not. And so I do think from that standpoint, maybe that will be part of the incentive to get people back to traveling and be open to the face-to-face aspect again is uh, just the realization that rather than 27 different things that I need to travel for, there's five, but those five absolutely need to be there for. Yeah. And, um, you know, they made a movie about this. Was it up in the air, uh, with Clooney Mm -hmm. about, um, I've known when that movie came out, uh, I immediately thought of a guy I worked with. I had two bosses in my first job out of business school and, uh, one was super corrupt guy and then another one, one was this great guy who i'm still good friends with and um this super corrupt dude um terrible personal life you know just you wouldn't want to emulate this guy in any way he was up in the air guy he would travel 50 weeks a year and um it was uh he just lived this fantasy life where, you know, whatever obligations that a normal person might have at home, he either didn't have them or ignored them and just lived life willy-nilly out in the road for most of the year. And it's been fascinating to me to see that with the pandemic, that stopped. So you sort of have to come to terms with what is at home. And um, some people have had trouble with that. And I think that... um, that's just been interesting. I've just been fascinated to see that uh, play out. But um, but you're right. You're only going to events when you really, really, really need to. And I think people who are thinking about events, you have to think critically in terms of what, as you said, what can't be replicated uh, virtually. Here's what can't be replicated virtually a hundred CEOs gathering together. You can try, you can't, you can't do it. If you can, you're a miracle worker. I, you know, and even if you manage to do it, it still wouldn't obviously be the same. Um, and that's, 
that's what's going to make Project Voice in person really, I think the right word is a seminal event. Now I've pissed some people off. I immediately stopped selling passes and declared them sold out. So you can't buy them anymore. Um, and, uh, uh, and there's this sort of um, different flavor. It's, it's obviously by definition an elite event. And, you know, people in the community are not used to that. They're used to everything being open. And um, I understand why that's challenging. Um, the fact of the matter is that to get back to doing things later that are open once again to everybody and are inviting and are diverse and are inclusive and whatever word you want to use, you got to start from step one. You can't skip step one. Just like in building things pre-COVID, you can't skip the Chattanooga library to get to where Project Voice had become and was becoming. You, you don't get to skip steps for anything that has meaning. And um, that's exactly what's going on here and people aren't gonna like it um, because it's not going to match what the world used to be like, but I can't help that. Um, <clears throat> the, um, the, the thing, the thing that I do like about virtual events is that um, they allow um, they allow people to come together in low stress, low risk ways. You know, we've gotten to the point now with vir virtual events we do. I'm gonna put the program together. I'm gonna do it as quickly as I possibly can, but I don't wanna think about it. I'm not gonna spend a long time. I'm gonna be right in front of my background that I'm in front of for every single thing we do. <laughs> and um, I'm gonna use Zoom. I'm not gonna do even one iota of research on more advanced ways to do virtual events because people don't want it. I can tell you that, you know, um, and I think as physical events come back, it'll help virtual. I got a whole theory on that. Um, but there's just not as much at risk. You know, people are forgiving of things in the, those environments now, and they're empathetic with event, event organizers, to use that word, in a way that was never the case before. If you roll into an event pre-COVID and something was wrong, or I think about our community has had some virtual events that did not go very well. Um, and as the pandemic went along, people became, became more accepting of snafus or things that would happen. I think all of that is a real positive development. It, it creates this casual tone that I think can be useful for certain types of things. Um, 
So I'm not totally down on virtual events. I maybe it sounds they've got a time and a place. And I think the beautiful thing is the, the problem now is that it's, it's all there is. So if, if I come, you know, if I, um, if all I ever have to eat for dinner is, um, you know, green beans, to use a bad example, I guess, I'm going to get, I like green beans, but I'm going to get tired of them after about two weeks. And I'll be like, I'm not eating any more of it. I don't care if I don't eat anything. I don't care if I starve. I'm not going to eat any more of it. And that's where we're at precisely with virtual events. I don't care if I starve from a content point of view. I don't care that you're telling me that this thing is great and I need this information for my career. I'm not having it. I'm in front of the computer too much as it is. I'm burned out. Um, my family is in disarray because of societal conditions imposed upon me. I'm not doing it. As physical starts to come back and the world gets to be a little bit more in balance, paradoxically, there will be nothing better. Virtual events will boom in a way that we haven't really seen. People will be willing to pay for them. People aren't willing to pay for virtual events now at all. Um, I'm talking not even $1. Um, it's, it's been reduced down to commodity status. And if it's free, okay, maybe I'll attend. All of that will change. And I think that's exciting. Um, so, sorry, you got me on my virtual event soapbox. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, you know, I think what I'm hearing from you today in general is Zoom fatigue and just virtual event fatigue. I think we're all feeling that. And I actually really strongly agree with you that I think that the best thing that will ever happen to virtual events is live events. I think that the two need each other. Um, I think that in kind of as I was referring to earlier, you know, it's like, I actually think there's definitely a time and a place for a lot of these virtual type meetups and interactions. And um, I, I don't think that they're, I don't think that they're an issue, but I think what's an issue is now that we know what both are like, I think that you can't really have one without the other um, in order to avoid the fatigue. Because I think that in the same way that traveling 27 places in a year is overkill, having a, you know an endless amount of, Zoom or whatever one of these different virtual meetings or interactions are, it's like you said, I'm, I'm tired of looking at a screen. I want to get back to talking with people in person. And, and one thing about that, people would ask me about coast to coast. This was early. No one asked me this anymore, but this was an inception phase. Um, how many people you think you're going to get in St. Louis? How many people you think you're going to get in Minneapolis uh, or uh, in places we haven't had events or maybe smaller geographies like a Cheyenne, Wyoming. Went to Cheyenne, Wyoming. How many people are you gonna get? Wrong question. That is an old world pre-COVID question. And I'm dealing with the same thing with marketers who wanna talk about numbers of people coming to virtual events. Like it matters. And that, it's really why I've migrated away from virtual events. If I had met with one person on this entire coast to coast tour, I go to 35 cities. I meet with zero people at 34 of them. And I meet with one person in one of them. That right there is better than the sum total 
of most 99.999% of what's going on with virtual events. And why? Here's why. When, you know, virtual events can be good for right now for blowing off steam, reminding, you know, trying to maintain some humanity, um, just doing the best you can. You're, you're surviving, you're not thriving. <clears throat> Uh, you're not forming a deep connection with anybody. Um, the first in-person meeting you have again and again and again and again and again on this tour, I have met with people who have told me the same thing. You are the first person that I've met with that has not been my family. And it doesn't matter what else is even said they're not going to forget that. You know what I mean? So automatically, from a business point of view, you have established a meaningful, deeply connection. And I love it. So when I go to, um, went to Cheyenne, Wyoming, I'll just use that as an example. Met with a woman out there named Judy Fossum. Judy is a voiceover artist looking to get into voice technology, studying it closely. She's attended several events. How can she leverage her skill set and her experience within this new emerging frontier? And had a great conversation with her, have helped her, made some connections for her. See, this is another thing about the Coast to Coast Tour, and I, I haven't really promoted this at all. People, people who register, I have have my loyalty in terms of I reach out to them and I don't let them go just if they even if they don't show up. Because what happens inevitably, anybody can be bold and have a moment of internet boldness where I'm going to sign up for this thing and I'm gonna go. And I'm on the computer and I can make that decision with no impact. But then the day comes and you see it on the calendar and you're sitting in the same place that you've been sitting at for the last year. So now you have a decision to make, and I've been through this. So I can I, I speak from experience about what I call the moment of truth. Your ass has been sitting in the chair for, for the last 12 months, okay? The imprint is there. Like you, 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 your, your, uh, your signature is well established in your physical domain. Um, and, um, you ask yourself, well, you have new habits and this muscle memory has formed and it's muscle memory of abject laziness. And am I going to go, uh, and be part of this thing and meet with somebody? Well, it, it, well, well, you know, well, I might, uh, get sick. Well, um, you know, I, um, do I really need to do that? All those things start creeping in. And um, I went through this uh, with my wife early on in the pandemic because Nashville, so March 16th was a Monday. And that was the day that California said, <clears throat> everything's closed and no more than five people can meet at any particular time for any reason whatsoever. That immediately brought 
to a halt the idea of doing Voice of the Car Summit out there. Had to change that all around. So that was in April. The last week of April, Nashville opened up. Restaurants were open 50%. Uh, almost everything was open. And I was shocked because my wife came to me, who's fairly paranoid about all this. And she said, we got to go to dinner. You got to take me out. We got to go to dinner. I'm like, come again? <laughs> and um, she's like, I'm just, we got, we got to do it. I'm, I'm losing my mind. So we went to this nice restaurant that we like to go to and drove up. We like to eat early. People call us, you know, grandma and grandpa. I've, I've always liked to eat early uh, my whole life, um, but I've gotten her on that train. And um, so this is like 4.45 PM. Uh, Cause we had, I think we had a five o'clock reservation and um, sat there in the car and we both looked at each other and said, are we really gonna do this? It had been a month at that point um, of not doing anything. Forgot what it was like, had no idea what was waiting in the restaurant, no clue. Could have been compliant, could have not been compliant, have no idea. Are we really gonna do this? And uh, she was like, yeah, I don't know. You wanna just go back home? I said, no, 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 we're gonna go do this. You wanted to do this. We're going to go do this. She's like, all right. So we go in there and um, uh, we don't even set foot in there. Standing in the doorway is the general manager, mask on, thermometer in hand. And all this stuff is new. This is sort of normal now. Um, and he's like, I'm going to take your temperature. I'm like, okay. So, and then we are going there. The tables are in this completely different configuration where they're all distanced, the staffs are the staff is all wearing masks, and it's this professional operation. <clears throat> and uh, we ate dinner, and I remember the first time that um, somebody walked in, um, and um, everyone walking in had to wear a mask, but this person was like fidgeting with their mask as they walked by our table, and I just sort of had this moment of. Uh, <laughs> you know, and um, you got to go through all of that to you got to work out all the kinks and get the get the jitters out of the system because you're going to have all these jitters. And um, and I learned something there as well, which was um, the tone is set from the top on pandemic posture and reactions, nothing different than what you've gone through with your business here. The tone is set from the top. General manager outside showing right off the bat, he is accountable for whatever goes on inside, but wearing the mask and taking everything seriously, um, it, made a, it made an impression. And, um, and so, uh, you know, as, as we've gone along, I've, I've been that person that has been standing at the door, basically, of the future, you know, this next chapter. And I applaud 
the people who have been willing to come out and see me because I know what's involved. There's nothing unsafe about it at all. Um, I know the environment, I control it from A to Z. Um, I've, I've dealt with the restaurant. I know everything that's going on that they're gonna walk into. There's nothing about it that's unsafe in any way, but I know what they're dealing with, that mental hurdle of can I actually go? And so everywhere I've gone, basically 50% of registrants have shown up. And uh, I know why the people who didn't show up didn't show up. It's because they're having to work through these things on their own. And um, that's been very interesting to see. But everybody's come out for coast to coast. I've done everything I can to honor them from, you know, uh, girl shows up in DC, um, who's getting into voice. I call her out in my newsletter saying, let's get this person a job. Um, people have come out, you know, I've, I've done catalyst type of stuff, basically extended our consulting arm to help them. Um, and, um, and I've been honored to do it because if you're going to do that, you know, if you're going to, uh, have that gesture of good faith, you know, basically, um, think that highly of me, then I want to pay that back. And, and that's been a beautiful thing about this whole tour. The goodwill it's generated has just been, it's been like an atom bomb going off. Um, and it's just, it's, it's, it, it's been, you know, I haven't made that many good business decisions in my life, but this is one of them. And so uh, that's the way I feel about it. I love that. That's a perfect way as we kind of come to the close here. I mean, I liked both the analogy that you made about the, you know, you're kind of the general manager standing at the front of the restaurant, um, you know, presenting that top down position of, you know, here's, we're going to make sure that we're complying to every possible procedure and every possible safety measure. And, it's this whole conversation has just been really interesting to me because in, in so many ways you really have played witness to one of the most, one of the most, um, I guess, impressionable periods of all of all of our lives. You know, I remember I was in a conference one time and there was a speaker there and he was talking about, you know, the different, um, things that kind of categorize generations, like, you know, the different life, events, the collective moments that we share together. And this was back in 2018 or something like that. And so he said for millennials, you know, you had the recession, you had 9-11 and you had like, I don't know, maybe the dot-com crash or something like that. Um, and, and then you, you know, you follow that out with the Kennedy assassination and, and Vietnam and, you know, for all the different generations. And obviously this is another one of those things, those collective moments. And, I don't know very many people that have had the type of experience that you've had where you've been on the ground floor, you've been in the trenches seeing like, this is actually what I saw when I was in places like the Pacific Northwest or when I was down in Florida or I was up in New York, you know, it's just a fascinating account, a firsthand account to hear. I mean, we have books that are written about the firsthand accounts from the other life events. So in many ways, I think you just shared 
sort of like a firsthand experience that, you know, future kids from now will look back on and, and, uh, listen to future year. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but, but in many ways, I think it's, I think it's really fascinating to hear about, you know, you, you go and, and obviously the basis for the trip is all about meeting with, uh, the, the people that you've really done a good job of bringing together with your events. And then in so many ways, like the world is becoming decentralized, project voice became decentralized. And so you had to go and meet them where they were. And uh, I just think this is, it's fascinating to hear about, you know, as the backdrop being the pandemic and things aren't good. You know, it's like, I, I, I like that you didn't sugarcoat things that there are some really bad things that are happening right now. It's not to say that like we're living in Armageddon or anything like that. Like there are bright spots, but there are bad spots. And I think that it's, it's just such a weird and interesting period of time that we're going through right now, because even though, um, you know, the pandemic uh, in terms of the actual virus and the caseloads and all of that, the end is in sight, we're still going to have a lot of rebuilding to do. There's a lot of people that have been severely impacted by this. And so I think again, to just kind of bring it full circle, uh, in a way that's relevant to this, podcast audience and to the community writ large is like, how can we all ourselves come together and be part of that effort in rebuilding this? And I mean, again, this isn't to say, you know, how can we do some sort of, uh, you know, macro level thing that's far reaching, but more of a microcosm of, you know, what, what, what are ways that we can, in some sense or another, provide a sense of community, provide a sense of um, that, you know, we're rebuilding this thing and that we're coming back together. Yeah. Let, let me sort of give you a little bit on that as we sort of wrap up. Um, the biggest thing that somebody can do is just to get themselves right. People are all messed up. And if you're um, struggling with mental health, um, if you're depressed, um, if you uh, have a relationship issue of some sort that's dominating uh, everything and you can't focus, uh, all sorts of things I've seen, um, you know, you got to get that right. Um, and uh, you got to come out of the pandemic as strong as you can because um, you look at people who are getting vaccinated. What are they doing? They're getting their vaccine and they're going right back home <laughs> and they're staying there. And over and over again, uh, you would think it would be the opposite. If, if you were an alien landing on earth and you didn't know anything about anything, you would never assume that somebody would live, in, live life in relative isolation for nine months, get a vaccine, to this disease, which is a threat to them. And then immediately go back to relative isolation. No one would ever think that. So what does that speak to? That speaks basically to, in various forms, mental health things that have to be dealt with, uh, whether it's just habits, and I don't mean mental health to be to sound like debilitating or, or 
stigmatized, you know, mental health things can be habits that we're in. Old habits die hard and sometimes they don't die at all. Um, you know, uh, you got to work through whatever it takes so that you can be a meaningful participant again, because to be a meaningful participant in the community is going to be a bigger calling than Zoom. And so, um, whatever it is you got to work through, you got to work through it because otherwise you can't be a contributor to anything. You're not going to be helpful to anybody and you're not going to, you're certainly not going to be able to help expand the, 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 the circle of this community, help bring people in, help nurture opportunities, help do any of those sorts of things that this new world's going to require. Um, if you can't even get past walking out your front door, so that's, it's, it, you know, that's what people have got to work through. And no one said it's going to be easy, um, but, um, but that's, uh, that's where we're at. Well said, well said. Well, Bradley, this has been a uh, really interesting conversation. Definitely a, a little bit unlike the other conversations I've had on this podcast, but I'm all for it. I think it's, like I said, I think it's a really unique story that you've told um, and you've played witness to a major event in all of our collective lives. So it's been a really great conversation. I appreciate you coming to St. Louis, being with me today in person. Um, thanks for the great. hospitality. It's been an honor. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks everybody who tuned in here to the end and we will chat with you next time. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Future Ear Radio. For more content like this, just head over to futureear.co where you can read all the articles that I've been writing these past few years on the worlds of voice technology and hearables and how the two are beginning to intersect. Thanks for tuning in and I'll chat with you next time.